Welcome to Beyond Blathers, the podcast where we dive deeper into the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. I'm Sophia Osborne. And I'm Olivia DeBercier. And if you want to support the show, check out our merch store over on Etsy at etsy.com slash shop slash beyond blathers. Speaking of our shop, we are having another sale. So this time you can get 15% off all of our stickers and postcards until October 1st. So definitely go check it out. Yeah, please do. And thank you so much to everyone who ordered during our last sale. We were so happy to send out lots of little ocean sunfish ornaments, but there's still some left. So check those out too, because they're just so cute and I want them all to go to good homes. (laughs) And speaking of fish, which is a great segue. (laughs) Um, Very smooth. (laughs) Thank you. Today we're talking about the clownfish, which I'm like, finally, like, I feel like, I don't know. I don't know why we haven't done the clownfish yet, because it's like iconic. It's yeah it's the finding nemo fish i don't know either it's like such a classic fish yeah and it's like do people actually know things about the clownfish like i i feel an affinity towards it because of watching finding nemo so many times but i i don't actually know very much about it besides just kind of like that they live amongst anemones and anemones 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 <laughs> Oh, man. I'm going to have to say it so many times in this episode. (laughs) And next week, because next week we're going to do a sister episode, which is Anemones. Perfect. Um, So we will get good at it. I pray. Yeah. (laughs) Cool. Well, I'm definitely excited to learn more. But let's first see what Blathers has to say. So if you bring a clownfish to Blathers, he'll say... Few can deny the delightful qualities of the clownfish. These vibrant fish make their home among venomous anemones. It is anemones. Wait. Yeah, and like an enemy. No, an emony. Wait. Wait, is that what I said? Anemone. Oh, okay. Sorry, I kept hearing you say anemone. No. Okay. <laughs> this is where our like communication over the phone is like <laughs> it's like <laughs> almost N- there. <laughs> it's an N M N N M N not N N M. I'm sure I'll say it an enemy at some point, but Okay. It's fine. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay, so these vibrant fish make their home among venomous anemones. It's a mutually beneficial arrangement. The clownfish finds safety in the anemone's wriggling arms as well as leftover scraps of food. In return, the clownfish ward off parasites and predators for the anemone. Thus, these colorful fish remind us of the importance of maintaining good cheer among our roommates. (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy, is it ever good cheer. We're gonna like really get into the like very complex relationship (laughs) all these animals have. It's juicy. Yeah, no, I've just been like very surprised by everything I learned. Like, I also was kind of reflecting on what I knew about clownfish, and it really does go down to Finding Nemo. That's about it. Like, Yeah. Uh, and I mean, they're not like, they, they do a pretty good job, to be honest. Like, when I reflect on it, Finding Nemo has a lot of really good ocean facts. What an excellent film. Mm. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, like, I think most people know about that, like, relationship anemones have with clownfish. And... Yeah, so, like, before we get into those, let's talk a little bit about where you can find clownfish and about their taxonomy a bit. 
So clownfish are also called anemone fish, which makes sense. Uh, and they're in the group Amphiprionine. And there's 30 known species of clownfish, which is a lot more than I was expecting. Yeah. 29 of which are in the same genus, which is Amphiprion. And one is in the genus Premnas. So we all know that classic Finding Nemo style clownfish. It's, you know, orange and black and white. There's a couple of species that look like that, the orange clownfish and the common clownfish. But the rest are pretty much like, they're, they're quite different. They have that similar shape, but they can come in a number of different colors, including like different combinations of yellow, white, and black. And the largest clownfish can get up to 6.7 inches, while the smallest can be 2.8 to 3 inches long. So they're relatively small fish as far as fish go. But yeah, some can be like, uh, what is, I'm making a, a shape with my hand. How big <laughs> is this? Like a, like a hot dog bun. I don't know. <laughs> Hamburger mm. bun size. Like half a foot. Yeah. Yeah. So like decently big. Now, they can be found throughout the Indian Ocean, the Red Sea, the oceans of Southeast Asia, and the Pacific, and of course, the Great Barrier Reef. But they are not found anywhere in the Atlantic, which I find interesting, especially considering that there's 30 species. Anyway, so in these warm waters, they typically live in relatively shallow areas where adult fish will always be found in association with anemones. There's about 10 species of anemone that associate with clownfish, but while clownfish are obligated to live with anemones, anemones don't always need clownfish. I did say I was going to be saying anemone a lot. So. Yeah. Also, like, 100% I've been saying it wrong my entire life. So It's hard. <laughs> yeah. Who named them? And I, don't know. I guess we might find that out next episode, but they need to answer for themselves. I just want to know why there isn't an easier common name. Like, it definitely reads like a Latin name. Yeah, like, call them, like, Buzzy Plant or something. Oh, I do actually know why they're called that, though. Um, It's based off a flower. There's, like, a flower called an anemone. Oh, um, okay. So, technically, I should be calling them sea anemones. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I don't know who named the flower, but right. it's very okay. annoying. Well, speaking of anemones... Is it that the clownfish live inside the anemone? Like, I feel like that's what I remember from Finding Nemo. Yeah, they'll live sort of like, I don't know. It's Imagine like the anemone is like a, like a garden or a forest and they'll live within the tentacles and in that sort of bare patch in the middle. Yeah, so clownfish and anemones both benefit from each other's presence. Like Blather said, they have this mutualistic relationship. Now, this relationship appears to have existed for the past 12 million years, which is a very, like, long-term relationship. They've been at this for a hell of a lot of time. Yeah. So, good for them. <laughs> they made it work. <laughs> relationship goals. Yeah. <laughs> so, for the clownfish, the anemone offers, like, scraps of food, like, the stuff it doesn't eat. Uh, largely, it offers a safe nesting place and just, like, amazing protection from predators because technically it's a venomous animal and predators don't really want to get near it or they're at risk of being stung. And for some predators, depending on their size, they can actually be seriously affected by that versus, like, a human. Like, I'm sure, Sophia, as someone who grew up on the coast, you can relate because if a human, like, sticks their finger in an anemone anemone it's like this cute little like 
don't know, they just feel sticky. Yeah, it's like <laughs> so, a little tickle. Yeah, so it definitely doesn't hurt us. I'm sure there probably are species that would, but anyway, point is, predators not going to go near the anemones. For the clownfish, they are somehow resistant to this sting. And while there's a few ideas as to why this is, the exact mechanisms are still being figured out. So the main theory here is that there's something about the clownfish's mucous membrane. So all fish are covered in mucus of some kind. That's why if you pick up a fish, they're slimy. And this membrane in clownfish is relatively thick. So it's possible that the clownfish are basically just immune to the sting because of that thick membrane. And as a group, they've just sort of evolved that immunity because otherwise it could kill them. But alternately, and probably more likely, the clownfish may be employing some kind of chemical disguise. So something on its skin that tricks the anemone's stinging cells into thinking that the clownfish is just another part of itself. So this would make sense because we know that when young clownfish first find a new anemone to live in, or they've been away from their anemone for a while, It'll spend some time swimming around and rubbing like up against the anemone briefly. So maybe it's getting that chemical camouflage like keyed into the anemone's specific signature. Like this process can take a few hours. So that might be what's going on there. Um, I think of like in Finding Nemo when, when like Marlon like tells Nemo to like go like brush does that make sense? Yeah. Like that that scene where he's like, you have to go like brush so the anemone doesn't sting you. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if they need to do it that frequently, but I mean, that's like a pretty scientific thing to include in a cartoon. Yeah, so, that's cool. Good for them. Yeah. So a lot of studies are very interested in the community of microorganisms that live on the mucus of the fish and on the anemone. And they found that during this period of the fish swimming around the anemone, like not even making contact necessarily, but sort of swimming through it, the fish's microorganism community or microbiome will start to look the same as the anemones. And there's a thought that this similar microbiome might be the disguise the clownfish needs in order to trick the anemone's stinging cells into thinking that it's just part of the anemone, not a fish. So whatever this immunity or camouflage is, it's probably got something to do with the fish's mucus, interestingly enough. That's so interesting. What a cool adaptation. Yeah, like who would think that bacteria on a fish's skin would also be involved in this relationship? Like it's not just the fish and the anemone. It is, you know, algae and bacteria. Like there's a lot going on here. Lots of organisms. That's true. It's kind of like facilitated by another organism. Yeah. This is a random question, but I guess, like, does the name Nemo come from Anemone? No, it. I think Nemo's named after, like, Captain Nemo from oh. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, and Nemo <laughs> means no name. <laughs> okay. Cause... This is really specific knowledge. <laughs> You're just, like, outing yourself as, like, a Pixar super fan. huge. Yeah. <laughs> God. That's cool, though, since, like, Nemo is in Anemone. Yeah, that's true. I never thought... Maybe that is... Wait, I'm Googling this now. Maybe it's part of it. Like, it's like a double entendre. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, let's check this out. Okay, so the etymology of Nemo means the man. But in Latin, it means nobody. Mm. 
I think it would make sense that they would name him after Captain Nemo. Yeah, totally. That seems that seems to make sense. But let's see what what Disney Wiki says. Disney's hmm. very into Jules Verne stuff. Are they? I didn't know this about them. I'm like fully invested in <laughs> figuring this out. But yeah, because he did like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Journey to the Center of the Earth. That's true. Okay, so it says here it's likely a reference to Captain Nemo. Okay. Oh, with the 1954 film adaptation of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, the film, the film's theme song was briefly sung by the Moonfish School, serving as another reference. Oh, cute. Huh. The more you know. Thanks, Disney Wiki. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure our audience really came for that. Yeah, this is also semi-Disney podcast. Is inevitable. <laughs> and so, going back to the science, <laughs> what does the anemone get out of this relationship if it is mutualistic? Well, one of the main things it gets out of this is that the fish poop a lot on the anemone. <laughs> um which might not seem like a benefit, uh, but the nitrogen in the fish's poop actually promotes the growth of algae on the anemone, which in turn helps it to grow and regenerate faster. So the anemone also has this like relationship with algae, much like coral does, because they are related. So that's kind of interesting. But also, the very act of the clownfish swimming around the anemone helps increase the water circulation around this area, which helps with various bodily processes for the anemone. And the bright color of the fish is even said to attract prey for it to eat. So there's a lot of things that the, the fish could be helping it with. And so is there just one clownfish per anemone or do they live in groups? Okay, so this is probably the most interesting thing about clownfish, in my opinion. So they do live in groups with anywhere from two to six individuals, and they live in hierarchical societies. So each group has a dominant female who's like the big boss, and below her is the dominant male, and that's the only male who gets to mate with this female. And then below him... There's a group of non-dominant males, all of which have their own hierarchy levels until you get to the least dominant member of the whole group. And as you go further down this chain of dominance, the fish get like physically smaller, which is really cute. But here's where it gets totally bizarre. So get this, when the female dies, her partner, the dominant male, then turns into a female and becomes the new, like, boss of the anemone. Well, I guess of this community on the anemone. The anemone's <laughs> just doing its own thing. But, so the next male then in the dominance chain will then become her new mate, and everyone gets bumped up a step in the hierarchy. I love that. I feel like this is, like, a very progressive anemone community. It's so wild! <laughs> like, <laughs> they're just, like, waiting their turn to eventually become a female and mate. Yeah, man. Everyone wants to be <laughs> the dominant female. <laughs> it's called feminism. It's, it's the dream. <laughs> yeah. So like, you know, while sex changes during adulthood aren't completely uncommon in the animal kingdom, it's very strange to see a male become a female because it's usually the other way around. But all clownfish are born male. Does that mean that like, like, do they start producing eggs like after they become female? Yeah. Yeah, they'll just, like, their hormones will change. And, like, yeah, they'll just start producing eggs at that point. 
It's really interesting because, like, I don't know, it, it makes sense in my mind for something to turn from female to male just because I know with, like, mammals at least, like, the embryo starts as, like, a female and then might turn into a male, if that makes sense. Right. Uh, like, bio 30, <laughs> like, <laughs> high school bio facts. But, yeah, it's, it's very strange to encounter something that does the opposite. And so what is the life cycle like are there ones that start female no none at all oh my god it's so crazy so you know starting with sort of the nesting stage of the life cycle the dominant male clownfish will like find a good nesting site for the female it'll clear it of debris they like to make sure the nest site is close to the anemone but it can't lay eggs directly inside so sometimes the fish will even like bite at the tentacles of the anemone so it retracts its tentacles a bit and it'll make kind of like a little space right under the anemone for the nest and that way the eggs are better protected and the fish can care for the eggs without having to wander far away from the safety of the anemone it's also thought that by having the eggs close by it gets the eggs kind of used to the metabolites of the anemone which might help the little fishies to be able to tolerate anemone sting better, maybe. Um, I read a little bit about this, but it seems to be kind of unclear. But anyway, the female will then lay about several hundred to 1,500 eggs. A lot of eggs here. And it's the job of the male clownfish in the group to keep those eggs clean until they hatch. Now, the more the males sort of fan and dust off the eggs, the more eggs will successfully hatch. Interestingly, clownfish will continue laying eggs throughout the year and they tend to hatch around the same time um, of like the full moon or the new moon, which is like very spooky and Halloween-y. <laughs> but meanwhile, like the female will just be like, she'll lay the eggs and just sort of like leave the males to do their thing and she'll hang out in the anemone. That's so interesting that that it's like during the full moon or new moon. That's very werewolfy. Is there like a reason mm-hmm. for that? <laughs> Yeah, it, it's to do with the tides. So it's just like the tides are strongest at this point. And that really helps when the larva, the larvae hatch. Because when they hatch, they're really small and fairly transparent. And they get pushed towards the surface of the water by ocean currents and need to spread far away from their home territory very quickly so they don't get eaten. <laughs> and the high tides can help with that. Now, they can spread up to 120 kilometers away from their hatching location. So yeah, they'll they'll really spread out there. And after about seven days, the larva fish will find a new anemone, usually with a number of clownfish already present there. And then the newbie becomes part of the group, but will start at the lowest part of the hierarchy. And maybe if that little fish is lucky, it might become a female one day and have eggs. That's the goal. Wow. And so when they're in this hierarchy, do the males fight a lot or are they kind of just like cool with their social positions? (laughs) It seems like they're kind of just chilling out, like they're just patiently waiting their turn. Usually you would expect males to want to challenge each other to have a chance to mate, but it seems like evolution has pushed them to have this built-in conflict prevention tool. Like the lower dominance males will be physically smaller than the dominant male, which automatically makes them less of a threat and less likely to get attacked by the dominant male or the more dominant male. The very presence of a dominant breeding male is like stunting the growth of the younger males. It's really interesting. 
And another cute thing about clownfish is that they actually make like little clicking, grunting, and popping sounds to help communicate their size and status to each other. Um, and these sounds can differ between populations, like little fish language dialects. And these differences in sounds may have even helped clownfish become different species because if you can't communicate with each other, it's less, less likely that those fish can reproduce together, so they speciate. Now, normally these arrangements aren't super common in animals because it reduces the ability of an individual to mate. But in this case, the odds of a clownfish eventually mating are higher if they choose to like essentially wait their turn in the hierarchy, in the protection of the anemone, and with an easily accessible mate. It's kind of like they choose this because they can inherit both a home and a mate just as long as they're patient and they wait their turn. And they have the time too. Like clownfish can live eight to 12 years, which is incredibly old for a fish of their size. Yeah, that makes sense. Like just just chill out and wait for kind of everything to come to you. Like it does seem like kind of an idyllic little fish life inside their anemone. Yeah, like they don't have to fight. They're like, yeah, you know, I don't get to mate as much as maybe another fish, but like it'll come. Do they even <laughs> need to like go out of the anemone to find food and stuff or do they literally just like stay in there and... It seems like they stay really, really close. Like they eat... I forgot to mention this actually. Yeah, they eat like debris. They'll eat phytoplankton. They might go a little further up in the water column, but it seems like they, they really do like to stay pretty close to home, especially because they if they leave the anemone too long, they have to like reacclimatize to it. Right. Um, and also it's not very safe. So yeah, they just sort of eat whatever comes by. Unless they need to go look for their missing son. Unless, unless that case happens. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and so I feel like it's been a while since we talked about like a I guess, like living animal, but could you talk a bit about their conservation? Like, is this an issue? I can imagine it maybe would be, but I don't know. Yeah, so they aren't listed above least concern on the IUCN's red list, but nevertheless, they do have a lot of challenges and there is concern for their populations for a few reasons. Now, like any other sea creature, clownfish are threatened by things like coral bleaching, ocean acidification and warming, pollution, habitat loss, you know, the typical culprits. But I'll mention a few that are sort of species specific and that I sort of read some interesting papers about. The first thing is that clownfish are a very popular pet trade fish, unsurprisingly. And overcollection of clownfish has reduced their populations in some areas, so that's not great. Second, because clownfish tend to live in shallower areas near developed land, they main counter times where there's like a lot of dust in the water. Now, we're going to be sciencey about this and call it sediment. And it can be made up of soil, like pollution, other debris from the land. The point is that it's like a solid particle. And of course, the ocean is filled with a lot of sediment. You know, rain and wind is constantly pushing sediment from the land into the water and naturally, storms tend to stir up high amounts of sediment. But when there's lots of development on shore, like buildings or industrial activity, the ocean gets filled with high concentrations of sediment for longer periods of time, which can cause some issues. Now, what happens with clownfish is that they have this mucus layer over their gills to help protect them from sediment getting into their gills. We talk a lot about mucus in this episode. Sorry about that. <laughs> but if there's something like a hurricane and there's suddenly like a lot of sediment in the water their mucus layer will thicken, as will the protective cell layers around their gills. 
But the thing is, if the sediment persists for too long, these thick layers around the gills become a problem because they block the ability of oxygen to pass into the gills as easily. And this can produce the ability of the fish to breathe and to do, like, its fish stuff, like digesting food and making energy. And this can stress the fish out and make it more susceptible to disease and bad bacteria that can develop on its gills. If bacteria grows on the gills, that can be yet another problem for the fish because the gills are like a door into the fish's body. It's easier for these bacteria to get inside and kill the fish. Now, to make matters worse, this sediment buildup usually affects clownfish larvae the most because, like I said before, the larvae need to disperse to find new anemones to live in. But if they aren't getting good oxygen uptake, they won't be able to swim as far or as fast and they'll end up pretty much staying in the same area where they were born. And this is the same area where presumably there are these high sediment levels. So it's kind of trapping the fish in this like unhealthy, polluted environment. Now, sediment can also like, of course, smother corals and anemones, which will in turn affect their available habitat. And around the Great Barrier Reef, oil operations are doing things like dredging up a lot of seafloor, which is really increasing the sediment concentrations in this area. So there's a big worry that this could end up killing a lot of fish. And scientists saw that these negative effects on clownfish were showing up when the sediment concentration of the water was about 45 milligrams per liter. And dredging activities, like the one I just mentioned, can increase the sediment concentration to 500 milligrams per liter in the water. So that's 11 times more than, you know, when we just first start seeing these negative effects. So that's very not good. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) So... This exposure to sediment pollution is rising, with at least a quarter of the world's coral reefs threatened with worsening water quality. And a lot of people depend on these reefs for food and well-being, so it's really important to protect them. Now, the third issue I want to mention is that clownfish appear to also be sensitive to artificial light, so light pollution. In places where there are oil rigs, coastal hotels and cities, or large boats like cruise ships, the artificial light can light up the night in the ocean. And a number of studies have shown that when this artificial light is present, clownfish eggs actually won't hatch. Because the signal for eggs to hatch is the lack of light. Larvae are most likely to survive if they hatch at night, so of course it makes sense that that would be the trigger. But if eggs always think it's light out, they just aren't going to hatch. And with Earth becoming 2% brighter every year because of human development, this could be a big issue for clownfish in the future. So that was another paper I read that I thought was kind of interesting because we often don't think about light pollution, but it does affect animal behavior. So yeah, we gotta we gotta look out for our little clownfish buddies with their like wacky chromosome bending and their like fancy mucous membranes. And of course, always remember to support your local watershed organizations, whether you live near the ocean or in the middle of the prairies like I do. And um, I also want to mention, like, if you have local climate strikes going on in your in your cities, I highly recommend going um, and supporting those initiatives because that's really like sort of the biggest thing you can do right now, I think, in my opinion, as like an individual with not a lot of power (laughs) relative to like world leaders. I think it's a a really good idea to try and go and support those. Yeah, for sure. I'm surprised that they're listed as least concern because that sounds like a lot of concerns. (laughs) Yeah, I know, right? I guess they're populations aren't like plummeting down. For anyone who's not aware, like the IUCN calculates their 
their statuses, like whether they're endangered or not, based on the like percent of decline uh, in a population. So like oftentimes with ocean animals, it's really hard to like go around and count every clownfish. So it can be pretty hard to estimate at times. That makes sense. And yeah, what you said about not thinking about light pollution, I think I think about it quite a bit like on land, but I did not think about it in the ocean. I guess I kind of assumed that deeper down it wouldn't, the light wouldn't penetrate, but yeah. Yeah, I guess like animals rely so much on like very subtle cues in their environment that when those change and like for long periods of time, that can really mess them up. Like, um, yeah. and yeah, I mean, these these fish aren't aren't that deep in the water either. So, but something I didn't think about was like oil rigs. Like I've, I, when I think of oil rigs on the water, I just think of like a big machine, but like they're covered in lights. So of course they'd be like messing up all of these organisms under them on a number of levels, but like light pollution, who would have thought that would be one of the problems that oil rigs cause. And like cruise ships and Mm -hmm. um, like freighter ships and stuff like that. I mean, where my dad lives on Saturna, there's pretty much always big ships going by. And then sometimes they'll park, like not at his place, but other areas uh, like around Vancouver and the Gulf Islands and stuff. These big cargo ships will park for like days while they're waiting mm-hmm. um, to unload or whatever. And they just have the lights on the whole time. And sometimes they have like loud noise the whole time. And people who live close to those areas do complain about it but I imagine for animals that are underwater it's pretty loud and bright too mm-hmm. yeah definitely like yeah oh holy smokes lots going on on yeah. the ocean every time we do a fish it's like every conservation. time I'm uh. so sorry <laughs> as I'm like trying to find like hopeful things at the end like mm-hmm. go to your climate strike totally. every Friday <laughs> yeah Well, thank you so much, Olivia. That was great. I learned so much. I need to like watch Finding Nemo again and fact check it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. We should do like a live react. Yeah. (laughs) Like who would have thought like Marlon scientifically should become a female as soon as his Nemo's mom dies. Yes. Oh, my God. I would love to see that. They should make another (laughs) plot twist. Finding Nemo 3. Yeah. Marlon's a woman now and Nemo's like next in line and uh <laughs> technically Nemo should just be like somewhere else yeah he should be like somewhere Nemo else. wasn't lost Nemo was doing the appropriate dispersal of a larva <laughs> it's true well um everyone should make sure to tune in next week to hear about anemones yeah but yeah thank you all so much for listening don't forget to check out the sale going on on our merch store we've got tons of stickers and postcards to take a look at. So that's etsy.com slash shop slash beyond blathers. And follow us on Instagram and Twitter at beyond blathers. Tune in next week to learn more about the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. Bye. Bye. Bye.